We looked at a couple things that in, at the beginning of this, uh, uh, this series. Uh, first, we looked at kind of an, an idea of restoring the biblical pattern in the sense that in our day and time period, in the predominant philosophies of the future and the future of the church is that the world is going to prevail until a cataclysm, cataclysmic geopolitical return of Christ where he's going to force his, his kingdom on the world, landing on Mount Olivet, establishing a kingdom in Israel, somewhat similar to David's kingdom, but throughout the world. And uh, all of this is kind of nonsense. Nevertheless, it, it, it was an idea that began uh, in the 1830s among a cult called the Millerites. It was picked up by Bible-believing church Christians after the Civil War and became the predominant mindset in the Bible-believing Christian movement from the 1890s to the 1920s. But kind of a, uh, glorifying the darkness, that the darkness is going to get worse and worse and worse, and the church is going to be powerless to stop that. And ever since we began to have that as our vision and our goals, that's what we've experienced, at least in Western culture and America. Now, I often say that even if a church has no doctrine of personal mentoring or discipleship, some older Christians will personally mentor or disciple younger Christians. Even if a church has no real doctrines of community, some community will take place. Um, if it ha doesn't have much emphasis on the scriptures, some people will read the scriptures and so forth. So um, despite the fact that, the, that that has become the predominant view of American Christianity and so forth, kind of a run from the battle mentality instead of a fourth take the battle mentality. Uh, what, nevertheless, the church is expanding exponentially in Central America, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, in other parts of the world, Indonesia, uh, in particular, Malaysia. And so, um, now in some places, this has only gone from no. 1% Christians to 5% Christians. Uh, no one really has the accurate figures in China. Some people say that China has, Christianity is expanding so fast in China that China may be a predominantly Christian nation uh, in the next 50 years or so, which would, is amazing when you consider the godless philosophy of communism and uh, how anti-Christ the philosophy is. So, uh, but in other words, even if the predominant vision is completely wrong, it's in the DNA of people who've received Christ, who are followers of Christ, to get some of the things right. We, we still evangelize, even though we might have a very narrowed view of what evangelism is. We, uh, and we still have people make decisions, but we need to return back to, the, to, to uh, disciple-making, not decision-making, and so forth. So that's kind of what we're touching on in this series. And I, if you're Roman numeral one in your notes, I kind of went through that real quick. So what I'm going to do is that forever, however many weeks I stay on this, I'm going to go back and visit one of them in more detail. And today, if you look at Roman numeral one C, gates are for defense. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this. I also say to you that you are Peter, uh, which means a small stone. And upon this Petra, bedrock, I will build my church which was the bedrock of when Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The church is built on the revelation of Jesus Christ in its members. Okay, and so uh, as you come to see Jesus Christ, 
you become united with him in, in his death, burial, and resurrection. You become united with him by faith. And all those who are united with him by faith and that are spiritually united with him and have, a, have been regenerated in Christ and have a new nature, all of those people make up the church wherever the boundaries get drawn in time, space, continuum churches. Does that make sense? So uh, you... Some guy you're working with or at right state that you know that is a true Christian who fellowships in a church that has quite different uh, uh, liturgy or quite different goals and a quite different sense of mission is, is your brother. And so um, that, that is the foundation of the church, the revelation of Jesus Christ and uh, the reception of him in your heart as Lord and Savior, uh, King, Master, that you become a disciple following him. And that's the foundation. So, and then he, but then he says, uh, upon this rock, that is this bedrock, which of course uh, is Christ, I will build my church. One of the reasons I emphasize historical theology, this is really important that you hear this if you've not, not understood this about us, a lot modern modern people since the Reformation, both Catholics and Protestants, have studied systematic theology. If you go back to the 14th century, three centuries before the Reformation, 1300s, um, well, two, about two centuries, two and a half centuries before the Reformation, uh, Thomas Aquinas and the and the others, uh, Occam, William of Occam, they, they they led a movement called Scholasticism. And scholasticism was all about systematics. And we run a systematic theology class in our church, which I'm happy to say 10 people are taking this time through. And we've already, I've already begun to talk about with Ray about how uh, certain people in our church just kind of got started coming into the church a little bit too late to get on this running of the theology class. So we may start a second running of it next fall before we even finish this, this running because we would like everybody to have that foundation. But you also have to have what's called biblical theology. In biblical theology, you look at where the books were written, under what circumstances, by who, and what was God trying to accomplish through, through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. And you, you look at the Bible in and of itself. What's, what's totally seems to have evaporated in, in most sections of the church today is what you would call historical theology. And historical theology is based on this phrase, I will build my church. So if we just study scripture and say, oh, I'm just, I'm just following biblical interpretations, but we don't have any view of how other Christians have interpreted the Bible in, in each different century and each different movement and so forth, then we're really full of pride. We're saying the Holy Spirit can show me direct and I don't need to know what the Holy Spirit showed my other brothers and sisters throughout the centuries. But if Jesus, is, if I will build my church is true, then Jesus has been actively interfacing with his church through first through the apostles and the prophets, by the Holy Spirit, through communities of Christians. He's been revealing himself and how they first wrote the scriptures uh, is really important. How the scriptures came to be considered canonical, there 
right right for the 27 books we have from the new testament were all books that were considered by the communities of christians in the first century to be authoritative from the apostles from jesus christ by the holy spirit they were put in a formal list uh in a final form toward the end of the fourth century at the second council of nicaea but they they were always they, all they were doing was affirming what the church had believed in 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 uh, 75 AD and 80 AD and 90 AD within a generation of Christ's resurrection. So to study to just kind of take current lenses of our current culture and put our paradigms that's the word I was going to just read you a definition of paradigms that was the root I wanted from my. Uh, another outline, but I'll just tell you what a paradigm is. A paradigm is a set of assumptions and methodologies that come out of those assumptions by an academic community that very much determine what will be considered important questions, uh, valid methodologies, and therefore will determine the outcome. Uh, the concept was first applied by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, who's passed away now, but uh, probably one of the most important books I've ever read, and I would really encourage you to read this if you're uh, at all philosophically or theologically minded or scientifically minded. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Th Thomas Kuhn. And uh, it, what he basically says is that an academic community has a somewhat unified way of thinking, and that determines their whole view of reality, and uh, unfortunately, if the paradigm is not rooted in the Trinity and rooted in eternity and rooted in the scriptures, over time, it'll have more and more questions it can't answer. So along comes a young upstart person who says, wait, the emperor has no clothes. You know, in other words, he, he, kind, of, he, he kind of exposes the faults in the paradigm. And, then he, and uh, at first... He's ostracized. He's kicked out. He, in some cases, he loses his life. Uh, if you ever want to see how this works in modern times, uh, get Ben Stein's excellent movie called Expelled. And you'll see that if people who don't go along with the Darwinistic paradigm of, of evolution lose their jobs, have trouble making it in the scientific community today because the, whatever, the majority paradigm always... Uh, it, it's a war. Ideas are war. Books are weapons. Remember, we had to read a, a book in high school called 16 Books That Changed the World, and that was the opening line of the book. Books are weapons. See, paradigms change, change the world. You know, a, a modern example of this, or a, a kind of a Renaissance, early Reformation example, is Galileo. Uh, but going back to a Greek philosopher named Ptolemy, uh, Western culture that in the predominant academic community was the church, the Roman Catholic Church, said the, the universe revolves around the earth. Along comes Galileo, building on some other people's ideas, and says, wait a minute. The earth and the other planets that we know about revolve around the sun. He changed it from what's called a geocentric world to a heliocentric world. And that was a paradigm shift about in the scientific study of astronomy. Now, when he wrote that, among the, the educated and so forth, his ideas were immediately accepted. However, they were not accepted by the church. 
And so he was brought before the Inquisition and to be burned at the stake as a heretic because he was saying the emperor has no clothes and whoever's the predominant, uh, in today's world, it's the university system. The university system has become a certain kind of secular, humanistic, evolutionary, materialist worldview. In other words, that material always existed and that life came from non-life spontaneously and all the assumptions of evolution. And if you don't go along with that, you can't belong. And so you have to, you have to decide, is my, is my uh, commitments going to be to truth and reality or to uh, an easy way to go. Every Christian has always had to decide that. As Paul told us, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in Galileo's case, his daughter said, all the scientific community already accepts your ideas. There's, no, there's not going to be any stopping of them. So just go before the Inquisition and, and recant your ideas, and they'll let you live. And he, he did that. Because he kind of did it like this. Yeah, sure, I was wrong. And winking to the audience, you know. And he lived under house arrest the rest of his life because his ideas were already changing the paradigm. Okay, now that happens over and over and over again. I could give you hundreds of examples. But that's the same kind of thing that happens in business. I was amazed in 1991 when I went to work in the equipment financing industry, Certain banks in, uh, would have us go through their training materials, and the first thing they covered was Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and how that applies to the banking industry today. And I was like, wow. And, uh, but it very much implies to how we interpret Scripture and what the goals of the church are. And that's what I, that long development of the idea of paradigms is what I'm trying to say in terms of this gates or defense. Uh, Jesus said, I will build my church. If we're going to take that seriously, then we need to understand, he said, the Holy Spirit will lead and guide the church into all truth, and we're always in that process. And so we need to understand what the Lord has shown other Christians at other times. Not that they were always right, but to, to, to just think that because of my, I, to, to be raised in a completely modern culture when you know nothing about philosophy, theology, or history, to think that you can get, read the scriptures and get valid interpretations out of them is a kind of pride that's insanity. But it's what's behind the fact that we have 6,500 evangelical denominations today because everybody's right and, and very, very little... Uh, respect for for our the ancients goes into our thinking because we haven't even studied them nor do we know that we should if you study what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy and the rise of evangelicalism a big foundation stone of it was an anti-intellectualism that included an anti-history you know some a friend of mine calls it the age of aquarius mentality lou callagher uh you know that We've, we're the first generation that, you know, you, you have Christian songs that say, we're going to be the generation that does this and that and that. And, and we were, when we were hippies, we were going to be the generation that brought about love. And, you know, we were going to bring love into the world and we we're going to stop war and make love and smoke weed. And uh, everything was going to be wonderful. But there was no basis of, there was no doctrine of the sin nature of man. There was no thinking from a worldview level about what is ultimately real. What is the nature of man? There was no 
uh, grips with, uh, you know, sin, how is it that this generation is going to be more pure in heart than any other generation without the atonement, without, without the new birth, without being, without a, a radical church discipling you? That's, that's all those kind of ideas may, they, you know, they may seem really nice, but uh, that's all they are. They're just, they're illusions. So I hope we get what I'm saying here. I'm just trying to focus a little deeper today on this, this concept, I will build my church, and then the second phrase, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, if you study military history, you don't maybe have to be as expert in, 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 as Sydney is, but if you study military history, history, one of the things that you'll study is forts. And forts are not for offenses. We don't, you know, there were in, in uh, colonial America during the French and Indian War, there were forts in Pittsburgh and uh, up in, near Toledo. Anthony, uh, you know, you can still visit the fort up there near, in, my, in my, my, how do you say that word? Miami's, whatever it is. Yeah, or no, that's Miami's first down here. With Maumee up there, Anthony Wayne's fort and so forth. Um, you know, but you don't, no one ever said, I'm going to get my fort and I'm going to come over and, and hit you with my fort. You know, now there have been buildings that have been moved in various ways uh, over time, but forts are not for offensives and gates are in the fort and the gates are for defensive. Okay, so when Jesus says, I'll build my church, he says, he's saying, I, in Joshua 5, when Joshua, Jesus uh, had had the captain of the Lord's host appear to him. That was what's called a Christophany. That was the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Joshua Jesus, saying, "I am, you, I am your captain. I am your Lord, and I am going to cause you to 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 fight and win, taking this land." And God, that same commander is who we worship on Sunday mornings. He's the one that gave us this supper. He is one of the great paradigms of the church that's, uh, that's often, or models, patterns of the church, the word pictures, the imagery of the church, is the army. See, we read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which we just finished at Rock Campus Fellowship. Uh, we went through the book of Ephesians, and we read those verses about the armor and so forth about me. I, want to, I need to put on my personal armor. But the book has seven metaphors of the church, and that's the eighth, because the eighth is the, is the number of new creation, and it's the number of new birth, and it's the number of the beginnings of the new heavens and the new earth, which were established in the res, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, coronation, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was the ultimate D-Day of the world. From now on, it's a mop-up operation, and the earth is going to, and the the church is going to continue to prevail. Everyone has this retreat, retreat, retreat mentality. Do you realize that on the first Easter Sunday morning, there were less than 120 believers. Many of them had fled Jerusalem, and the ones who had enough guts had, that stayed in Jerusalem were hiding in an upper room, discouraged afraid and and 
discouraged at an ultimate level. They, they had lost faith. They were depressed. They were like, you know, when Jesus appeared to two of them on walking to the, to the nearby city of Emmaus, they were like so distraught. By the very next Easter after Pentecost, the very first day, 3,000 souls were added. Read Acts 4 and 5, Acts 4 and 5, and you see thousands other. The church was probably at least five to 10,000 people by the, first, by the second Easter. And it's been bigger every Easter since. Yes, Christianity is, looks like it's going in America the way it went in Europe, where Europe was at one time Christendom, and now less than 4% of people are nominally Christian, and probably about 2% are actually Christians. But that's not happening worldwide, and that's not the faith Jesus gave us. And the church is expanding everywhere. So let me read a couple of things that will help us get this perspective. Do you understand that in, in battles, it's all about when the two forces are enjoined, Yes, what, what, what will happen is as they're enjoying, if they're having trouble getting an advantage over each other, they will try to outflank one another and get a breakthrough on the edges so they can get in behind. But the, the idea is to get the, the other side to break ranks and run from the battle. And whoever runs from the battle first gets mopped up. That's why Rome was so powerful because of a, Ephesians 6 is talking about a corporate situation an army even the shield of faith was something your that your other your fellow soldier carried for you you didn't couldn't carry your own shield of faith so uh with that in mind i i just want to speak to this idea of of the of retreat with a couple quotes one uh from the 19th century and one from the fourth century the first one i'll do is from the 19th century is a very famous preacher named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's interesting that he still gets quoted quite a bit in evangelical Christianity, but less and less so over time. And uh, most of the people who quote him would consider themselves reformed thinkers. But he says this, it would be easy to show that at our present rate of progress, the kingdoms of this world never could become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Indeed, many in the church are giving up the idea of it. Remember, he's writing as the, this what's called pessimillennialism or dispensational premillennialism is starting to become very popular uh, uh, in the in in not it hadn't quite, he's writing in the 1880s, and this idea swept the church and took over all Bible believing thinking from the 1890s to the 1920s. So every group from Baptist to Nazarenes to Christian Missionary Alliance to uh, Church of God of Prophecy and Church of God Anderson, Indiana and Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee, all, uh, no matter where you turn, this idea that, uh, that we need to run from the battle and the darkness is going to get greater and greater and there's only going to be a few Christians you know, hiding out in the corner it, you know, has started to prevail since then. So he says, indeed, many in the church are giving up of the idea of it, that is, that the church, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Jesus and his Savior and of our Lord Jesus Christ in this time space world. Many, I, uh, let me just start. It would be easy to show that our present rate of progress, the kingdoms of this world never could become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
Indeed, many in the church are giving up the idea of it, except on the occasion of the second event of Christ, which, as it chimes in with our own idleness, is likely to become a popular doctrine. I myself believe that King Jesus will reign and the idols will be utterly abolished, but I expect the same power which turned the world upside down once, he's referring to Acts 17, 6, once will, continue, will still continue to do it. The Holy Ghost would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. Now, some of you know uh, and have read the famous book by St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. Here's a quote from his book. Since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it is getting less and gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, but that which used to be is disappearing. And demons, so far as continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracles, givings, and sorceries, are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try. On the other hand, while adultery and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, the Savior's teachings are increasing everywhere. Worship then the Savior, who is above all, and mighty, even God the Word, and condemn those who are being defeated and made to disappear by him. When the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also now that the divine epiphany of the Word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and in all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by his teaching. Now that was the faith of, of St. Athanasius, quite a bit different than what the Left Behind series is teaching. The number one, the number one selling Christian books of the last two decades opposed both these quotes and Matthew 6, 18 that we read from. They're, they are the number one selling so-called Christian books. Now, when, when he, uh, I'll get back to that in a second. Here, here's a, a guy named David Chilton, a book we highly recommend uh, called Paradise Restored. It's on our intermediate book list because it's a little bit more difficult reading than our foundational list. But very, very important book. You must not suppose he, that Athanasius was just a positive thinking optimist. He's actually writing this as his response to this quote I just read of, to you about Athanasius. David Chilton said, you must not suppose that Athanasian was just a positive-thinking optimist, relaxing in quiet, peaceful surroundings. On the contrary, he lived through one of the most severe persecutions the world has ever seen, the Emperor Diocletian's all-out attempt to stamp out the Christian faith. Later, Athanasius had to stand practically alone for 40 years in his defense of the doctrine of the Trinity against rampant heresy, being exiled by the government on five occasions and sometimes in peril for his life. In fact, his story gave birth to the proverb, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Yet he never lost sight of the basic fact of world history, that the word, in capital W, had become flesh, conquering the devil, redeeming mankind, flooding the world with light, which the darkness could not overcome. 
John 1, by the way. You know, interestingly, the church's view in the first five centuries was that Christ came to restore and redeem all things lost by the fall. So even meat sacrificed to idols meant nothing. If you, but you shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols if a weaker brother might be offended who doesn't understand that. Nevertheless, there are no idols. They're being, they're being smashed by Christ. Very much so a foreshadowing of Christ's ministry was when Dagon, the Philistines' god, kept falling over at night on his face and, and worshiping uh, at the feet of the ark. And his hands were broken off, meaning he, symbolizing he could not save, he had no power to deliver. He was just a useless idol. You, I, I, just this, I just this week, when we went to Rock Campus Fellowship, I stopped and listened a minute for, in the lobby to a guy who was explaining to some young lady how idolatrous and pagan Christmas is and how, uh, you know, it's, that all, it's terrible that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th because that's not the actual day that Christ was born and that was a Roman holiday and so forth and, and so forth because the church's view was this. We came to capture and restore the real meaning. You know, the occult people use rainbows. God uses rainbows. <laughs> and we're coming to capture the rainbow as symbolism for Christ. You know, the occult people use frogs, and God uses frogs. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, we need to smash their use of everything. And the reason the church chose December 25th, it was, it was right after the winter solstice, which means they had gone through the longest day of darkness a couple days earlier, and now the days were going to start to get lighter and lighter for longer and longer periods. Because in the incarnation, light came into the world and the darkness could not overpower it. It couldn't comprehend it. One candle is all it takes when I walk in here late at night uh, to take out the trash in the middle of the night or, or whatever reason, turn off the water because it's getting really cold out or whatever. It doesn't take much light. I don't have to turn on all the lights. The light is infinitely more powerful than the darkness. And that's what these quotes are saying. You know, again, Athanasius, where was I? said, just to draw out another part of it, where did I? I'm losing my, oh, yeah. You know, on the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. When the sun has come, S-U-N, metaphor, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it may be left, that may be left anywhere is driven away. The faith of the church is that we're supposed to conquer the world by the sword of God's spirit by a community of love, by being a city within the city, a nation within the nations. They're, the people are supposed to say, why is the light so powerful in that city? Why do they have the best business philosophies and the best? Why are they the lenders and not the borrowers? Why do they have the best marriages? Why do their kids turn out the best? 
Now, we're a far cry from that, but that is what God is going to do. Your choice is whether you're going to get on board with that vision or stay where where the church is, running from the battle, all scattered and defeated and confused, or whether you're going to do the hard work of starting to study enough and and get get anointed enough and and get wise enough relationally and so forth to begin to to be part of the city. Hey, come, quit being so confused. Come, come. Let's let's form our ranks again. You know, if you study any military history, you'll find that, you know, sometimes uh, the ones who win the war end up losing some battles. And sometimes... Their, their officers are out there saying, come on, quit, fight, quit running. Let's, let's form a line here. Let's, we, can, we can do this thing. We can do this thing not because of any innate goodness in us, which is an, a, a heresy called Pelagianism, which uh, Augustine and others in the church overcame. We can, you know, we can do this thing not, and there's, frankly, there's mod, some people who have a modern positive view of the church are Pelagianist. It's not based on the goodness of man and that sin's not so bad and the devil's not so tough. It takes all that into account and just says Christ smashed him and smashed him and smashed him in his earthly ministry. And when, he, when he's telling the disciples that, at the Passover supper, all the things about the Holy Spirit, he's saying it's to your advantage I go away because as I pour the Holy Spirit on you and as I form you into my body and my community, as you put God first and you get rid of the idols of, of entanglements with relationships that, that aren't godly or aren't going forward anywhere and so forth, as the light comes into the community of believers, you're, I'm going to continue to smash them. You're going to go proclaim the word cast out demons, heal the sick, teach people how to be great uh, workers on their jobs and great, uh, by, not, by, not just by principles, but by the power of walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. One of the reasons I take every troubled situation that God brings us, and I counsel that as, a little, as, a, as I can, but you can't do the counsel till you get born again, baptized in the spirit, and you learn how to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evidently things like enmity and sorcery and broken relationships and idolatries and making a mess of your life. And before you came to Christ, you walked by the power of the flesh being your own God. Now, you may have gone to church and been religious, but until you have a fundamentally uh, root change of the gospel where Christ becomes Lord and he's the power and the motivation and you don't put any confidence in yourself anymore and you're not a control freak anymore, you got nothing. That's the gospel. That's the starting line. And God can give you a very abundant life. He can take a guy like myself who had no social skills and cause you to be a leader among people. A guy who has no education, like myself, a guy who had no self-control when it came to drugs, sexuality, eating, anything. The only thing I exercised self-control in was I got up an extra hour early before high school so I could smoke more weed before we went to school. And uh, that was the level of my discipline. Believe me. God delights, for, read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. God delights in taking that which is base, that which is weak, 
you know what? I, we have a church full of people who came to us looking like the Isle of Misfit toys. And I am so proud to be the pastor of that. Because that the scriptures say that that's who God chooses to confound the wise. God is going to make us the wise businessmen who have the prosperous businesses. God is going to make us the people who have the best marriages. God is going to make us the people who, who can help broken and troubled people. And then not just some, a few of our leaders, but you. God is going to make you the answer to that. Sometimes I'll take some of the most troubled and messed up people that come to us and I'll start giving them a vision right when I'm sharing the gospel with them of, you know, I'd like to see you do this kind of ministry or that kind of ministry. Because if you can get a hold of that, then you won't go watch the NCAA when you should be studying. Learning to play guitar or, or whatever God has called you to do. If you start to believe that I can do all things through Christ and strengthens me when I become a part of a corporate vision, then you will become very disciplined and very studious and very teachable. And you won't run through every stop sign that, some, that a spiritual authority person in your life puts up for you. And every time you get confronted, you won't start with, yeah, but, 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 is what the goats say not the sheep. I tell you that the number one thing that I've watched over the years that makes a difference between whether people grow in the Lord or don't grow in the Lord is, is if they overcome being defensive. If you, if you press into spiritual authority and, and spiritual fatherhood, even if love must be tough and challenging, you will grow and grow and grow. If you stay afraid of it and you... Every time, it, you know, you make an excuse and blame shift, but you don't understand me. Oh, I don't think you really understand me. You'll never go it anywhere. Now, um, that was the gates are for defense. Um, I had hoped to, but I'm going to run out of, uh, on the 14 things, I was just ho hoping to cover that point a little bit, but ended up uh, sort of needing to preach it. As the uh, 14 things list that you have in your notes, which I don't seem to have that. There it is. Um, we already covered last week the Word of God and, and some paradigms about that. If you missed that message, please listen to it. On the, and we covered the kingdom of God. And uh, I had intended to cover biblically complete conversions today. Um, I, think, I think I'll just cover number four, loving God. So let's, uh, let's read a couple of scriptures. I've got, I got just a couple more minutes. Number four says, loving God, first commandment, passion, zeal, and intimacy versus compromise, complacent materialism. The truth of the matter is, is that complacency means self-satisfied. And there's an old joke, uh, which is really, what, which uh, problem is really destroying the church of our days? A ignorance or apathy? And if you ask most Christians that, the answer they give you usually is, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> so uh, that's really kind of where we're at. Uh, very few people know their Bibles or their faith very well. 
Um, but Jesus said that the commandments break down into two. The one is about loving God. And he, he quotes other places in Deuteronomy where he says this. And you need to ask yourself, Lord, is this how I live? And as I've taught us over and over, Hebrews 4 says, draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So if this doesn't describe you, just admit it before God. Get somebody over you in the Lord that you can admit it to. Confess that your sins, that I, this is not a description of me at this point, and start praying for grace. Everyone get that? You, don't, you know, it's amazing, but you don't have to posture or act like you got it together. That's just insecurity. Okay, so Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, as you can tell, I have problems in the with all your strength area. Some of you are nice and fit and work out and eat right and would never eat white flour or white sugar or salt or, and you work out all the time and so forth and you probably don't need any guidance there. But uh, I doubt that mo most of us love God with all our heart. So that means the affections of your heart and what you really care about have started to become realigned under King Jesus. Even your relationships have to go through an alteration to make Jesus the Lord of them. Or they're under a curse. Everything that Jesus is not reigning in is subject to futility. And that's why God lovingly allows you to have so much trouble with your family, your parents, your kids, your wife, your husband or whatever. God wants you to realign under his kingdom. And then when you're fully realigned under his kingdom, you'll see clearly enough you won't have logs anymore. When you don't have logs anymore, you'll see clearly enough to extend grace. In the measure you judge, you'll be judged. But if you, if you, have, if you extend harshness and, and so forth and, you, and your judgment is crowded by logs and you're, you haven't walked through a sanctifying process, you're not going to have, you're, you're, you're still going to be under frustration. But God wants to take you to a place where you're not under frustration. Let's read these verses that I put with this. This is very important. Loving God first. You know, the average Christian is just not what I would call on fire. When I think about our church, I, I, there's some people who got a little spark of fire, some people who don't. But how passionate are you for the Lord? You know, to the Ephesian church, Jesus said, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Are you at your highest time ever of love and zeal for God? If not, you're not where God wants you to be. There's, a, there's an idea in American Christianity that you're supposed to be on fire when you're a young baby Christian, and over time you'll get skeptical and cynical and unbelieving like all of us. <laughs> That's how most churches expect. Oh, isn't that exciting to see a young Christian who's really reading this Bible a lot and, and speaking in tongues all the time, and he keeps bringing his friends to church and sharing the gospel, and he's serving, and, you know, the ladies of the church got together to decorate the tree, and he showed up anyway, even though he's just 19, and they're all 90, and he's so wonderful. And he'll be cynical, bitter, and unbelieving, and, and useless in another 20 years. 
No, I tell you, I am more passionate for this stuff than ever. John 14, 15 through 17, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's your measuring stick. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, partly to help you keep the commandments, because he is the Holy Spirit, and he will increase your, uh, uh, you getting baptized in the Holy Spirit will increase your desire for holiness. But it won't be measured in legalistic holiness. It'll be measured in how loving are we towards whoever God brings us that might not be that easy to love. You know, people wait till they've been coming to a church three and four years to make the transition to serving and giving and tithing and, and inviting people over for dinner and increasing the... You know what? I'd encourage you, after, if you've been here three weeks, start acting like you own the place. Tithe, give, serve, invite people over for dinner, share the gospel, <laughs> you know, whatever. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You want to see more anointing on the Friday night worship? Apply that to yourself first. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Wow. That's a pretty cool promise, isn't it? Um, love of God has to be by the Holy Spirit. Read Romans 8. You'll see that the love of God has been, you can't do that. You can't do this. You have to start by confessing that you can't do this and by, and by asking the resurrected Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit to do it through you. Honestly, I have here, we become the rich young ruler culture. Study, uh, read a book that we have called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, which is a study of the rich young ruler. Uh, rich young ruler is in Mark 10, in Mark's version of it. But, you know, we have much wealth. The church is at an all-time high for radio, television, nice buildings. What happened to us? But, uh, you know, et cetera. But it's not at an all-time high for passion. For most people, God, Christ, his church are just a compartment of their life that they try not to let get too, too big. Don't, let, don't walk with God in such a way that he doesn't get too big in your life. Make sure he's your, your, he's your total passion. Amen.